chapter 19. Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew chapter 19, the last week we looked at the rich young ruler who could not give up his possessions to follow Christ, and uh, today our text follows appropriately in the same vein with a question from the disciples. Let's uh, begin by looking at our text this morning, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 27 Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration from the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that, shall be, many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. After Jesus deals with the rich young ruler, we have a question that the Apostle Peter asked of the Lord. And as often was the case with the twelve disciples, Uh, Peter was the one who stepped up to ask the question. Uh, We uh, find many times that uh, in the scriptures where the rest kind of stand around and they wait for the answer. They have the question as well, but it's Peter who will ask. And of course, this passage also tells us of our Lord's gracious response. But to fully appreciate this question, the answer that follows, it's important to know the context Uh, Believe it or not, uh, the uh, context is important. I can't, you probably can't believe that I would say that, would you? But uh, you see, when it comes to this passage, we find the disciples had just been a witness to a remarkable event, and it was an event that prompted this question. Now, the event occurred as Jesus and his disciples were talking or walking on the road while on the way to Jerusalem. And our Lord had already told them he was going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he was going to be killed. And then he was going to be raised the third day. And we saw that back in chapter 16. He's told them that. And he's telling them that he's on his way to take up his cross. And then Jesus went on to tell his disciples that they themselves must be prepared to do the same thing for him. Jesus was making it clear to the disciples that followed him that it was not going to be an easy path. It would involve losses and sacrifices, but it also involved the promise of rewards of those who are faithful to him to follow him along that hard path. I suspect, though they didn't understand fully the things that Jesus had said to them, These things were nevertheless rolling around in their minds, and while they were on their way to Jerusalem, with these strange words of our Lord in their thoughts, a rich young man, ruler, uh, uh, comes up to 
to, to Jesus. And you remember this uh, man was the very picture of morality and success. And uh, he was, from all appearances, the finest man, and yet he knelt before Jesus and implored him to answer the question that plagued his soul, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And the disciples watch as Jesus set the law of God before this moral young man, and the man insisted that he had obeyed God's law from his youth. But what was missing? What, would, what did he lack? And Jesus revealed that the missing element was, If thou wilt be perfect, go sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. As a result, the young man walked away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. Clearly, this rich young ruler could not fulfill Jesus' basic requirement to be one of his followers. He could not deny himself and take up his cross. He could not find his life by losing it for Jesus' sake and Jesus' call. He loved his riches more than he loved God. Now all of this shocked the disciples. It caused them to take inventory of themselves and to discover that they, in fact, had given up everything to follow Jesus. And it's only natural that Peter then would in turn uh, ask the question, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And if you have become a follower of Jesus, and if you have found that it is indeed a cost to follow him, Perhaps you would want to answer that question yourself. What about those of us who obey Jesus' call to follow and who suffer loss as a result? What shall we have? Well, it's an important question. And Jesus answers it for us in this passage. Now, before we would condemn Peter for asking the question, I think we should take a careful notice of the fact that our Lord did not condemn him for it. He certainly could have. We know that our Lord had rebuked Peter for other things. In fact, he had rebuked him sharply at times. But we don't get the sense that Peter was rebuked in any way for having asked what he and the others would have, for having forsaken all and following their master. Now some would rightly say say that it would be wrong to make this our primary focus. What are we going to receive or for our service? What are we going to get out of this? And when we serve the Lord, we obey His call. We should never come and uh, make it our, our, make our obedience contingent on what we are going to get out of it. He gave it His all for us in His mercy. When we would give nothing to Him, and grateful love demands that we would be willing to give our all to Him in return. But I don't believe that we would be wrong in wanting to know what the rewards of faithful service are to him, especially when he condescends to tell us. Perhaps it's best to say that from the standpoint of these early disciples, it was not at all wrong for Peter to ask. But because he asked, from the standpoint of our walk by faith today, we no longer need to ask. We can take the Lord's answer, the Lord who answered the disciples, as his once-for-all answer to us. You should not be asking, well, 
what am I going to get out of this? Because the Lord's already given us the answer. And this little passage teaches us an important spiritual lesson. It contains something that our Lord obviously wanted us to know, and that the Holy Spirit graciously preserved in the Scriptures for His children and for our edification. And it is that we can safely suffer loss in obedience to the call of Christ because He promises that we will gain back whatever we forsake many times over. No one has to give up all to follow Jesus, or no one who gave up all to follow Jesus will ever end up a loser. You know, the world would say, well, you're just a bunch of losers. No, we're the winners. And what a, what a blessing and what a great victory is ours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let's look closer at this passage and notice something that it honestly tells us. First of all, the call to poverty. Now don't understand, misunderstand me here at this point. I'm not saying you need to take a vow of poverty as some religious, a religions advocate in order to serve the Lord. That's not what the Lord is teaching here. Uh, there's no false advertising here. You, mean, you say, uh, to say yes to Jesus and his call may mean saying no to a legitimate comfort or security that this world has to offer. And clearly it did so for Peter and the others. They were able to say to Jesus, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. And Jesus doesn't correct them for having said this and made this claim. Now, in the case of Peter and his brother Andrew, it meant leaving their fishing business behind. Many of us who have heard the Lord's clear call to enter into His service have had to leave some profitable career or business. Some have had to leave behind a vocation in the world's eyes that's far more respected and desired. Some have had to forsake the use of their skills and their talents in the money-making field or apply them to the Lord's service in ways that the world really doesn't notice or value. In the case of James and John, their sacrifice was even more difficult They not only had to leave their fishing business behind because they were partners with Peter and Andrew, but they also had to leave family ties behind along with it. Remember what it said in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21 and 22, where it tells us Jesus was going along the Sea of Galilee and going from thence he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and they immediately left their ship and their father and followed him. And so we don't really get the sense that they wrongfully abandoned their father, and Zebedee doesn't seem to really object, but there's no question they had to make a tough choice. They had to make a difficult decision to leave their father behind, along with the business that their father had taught them. And perhaps even... Uh, uh, something that had taken many, many years to build up. And they did this in order to answer Jesus' call. Or take Matthew himself. Matthew, the author that was used for this gospel, the man whom the Lord used to record these words for us. Remember, he was a tax collector. He was a man 
who took taxes from his own Jewish kinsmen on behalf of the Roman government. And his occupation was not only a notorious and despised one, but it was very lucrative. And when he was through paying off the required amount to the Roman government from what he had collected, well, the rest was all profit for him. And yet we read that Jesus saw him sitting there in the tax office, and as he walked by and told Matthew, follow me. And he arose and followed him. It was up to one of the other gospel writers to point out that humble Matthew left all, rose up, and followed him. In Luke, it tells us Matthew left all and followed Jesus. Now here in verse 29, I want you to notice that Jesus and his call to service may require that some very precious things be left behind. He suggests that some would have to leave houses, the places that not only represent the security and provision for the future, but also provide comfort and safety and rest. Jesus himself felt this because he said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Some would have to leave brothers or sisters. Our Lord certainly knew what it was like because the Bible tells us that even his brothers did not believe in him. Others would have to leave father and mother behind. And I suppose some of you may be able to testify that in following Jesus, it puts you at odds with some of the closest members of your family. Some have had to leave the comforts of their own immediate family circle. Some would have to leave children behind. Now, I don't believe the Lord ever calls a man to abandon his rightful responsibilities to his wife and his children. But I believe this would be most likely mean that a man may be called to serve the Lord rather than even get married and start a family. Jesus said there are some in, in, in the same chapter in verse uh, 12, there are be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And Paul even encouraged those who would, uh, could do so to stay single and to give themselves undistractedly to the Lord's service. Some would have to leave lands behind, which have been, would have been an unthinkable thing for a Jew. Land was an earthly inheritance of each Jewish tribe and each family in that tribe. And to leave land behind would be to leave behind a connectedness with one's own earthly past and one's own earthly future. There have been many who have followed Jesus who found themselves perhaps at a fork on the road where they had to make a very difficult decision and they found them that following further with him required that they willingly forsake some of the most precious, most valued comforts of this world. And what's more... There have been many who have found these things were taken from them against their will, forcibly or violently, because of their commitment to Christ. Over in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, it speaks of those who commended because they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods, knowing in them yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Others in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of faith, tells us, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover bonds and imprisonments, 
They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and in the mountains, in the dens and the caves of the earth. All because they followed the Lord. Jesus was very honest about this. When he first called the disciples, he warned them. Go back to chapter 10 where he said some very uh, similar things concerning loving father and mother more than him. You see, it truly does cost to follow Jesus. It's the most expensive adventure a man or a woman could ever sign up for. It must... It most definitely involves a loss of many of the comforts and pleasures of this world. And so it's a fair and reasonable question that Peter has asked. Lord, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And it's a question that Jesus graciously answers. Matthew says he answered them. Did you notice that? Peter asked the question, but he answered them. Because you know those disciples, they all wanted to know too, right? And so Jesus answered them. And notice he speaks in the plural. I I believe he answered not only for their sakes, but for ours as well. And in his answer we see the restoration of the true riches. Restoration of true riches. Notice how the Lord answers the disciples' question. First of all, it's a solemn answer. The answer is very solemn. He says, Verily I say unto you. And of course, that's a phrase from the Savior's lips that should never be taken lightly. Whenever Jesus said, Verily, he means truly. You can depend upon this. This is absolute truth. All that our Lord and Master says is true. But here he calls our attention in a very emphatic way to the truth of what he is about to say. It's a once-for-all-time answer to this important question. It's one that you and I can put our trust in. And then we see the part of Jesus' answer is spoken specifically to the twelve disciples. Historians tell us that every one of the twelve died a martyr's death for our Savior with the exception of two Of course, Judas Iscariot went out and hanged himself after he betrayed the Savior. And then John, the beloved apostle, survived an attempt to take his life and he went out to die at a very old age in exile. But all the others, historically, died at the hands of those who opposed them in preaching the gospel. They gave their all for him and he promised to give them a very unique position in the kingdom. He says, Verily I say unto you, that ye shall have followed me in the regeneration from the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, he tells them that this will happen at the time what he calls the regeneration. And the only other time that word is used in the New Testament, we find it in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 where the Apostle Paul speaks of God's mercy in saving us. He says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And in that case, the word refers to the personal work of salvation. 
And that's when God causes someone who uh, believes on Jesus to become a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And here in our Lord's answer, the disciple uh, to the disciples, he speaks of something which is a much broader application. The regeneration is stated by Jesus to be that time when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory. It's clearly a reference to messianic reign upon the earth of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus taught that the disciples, though obscure and humble then, would someday be rulers with Him in His kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7, it speaks of this in verses 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came from the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there were given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Paul also spoke of this time as truly a regeneration for all creation. He says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And I believe that the Bible teaches that there will be a time when the glories of the Jewish people under the rule of the glorious son of King David will be restored on this earth. Jesus himself will rule on this earth as the king of the Jews, and he will, it will be his twelve apostles who will serve there on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes. So who will be added to the number of disciples to sit on the twelve thrones since Judas was not going to be among them? Would it be Paul? Some might believe it would be. Others suggest it would be Matthias, the disciple we find in the first chapter of Acts, who took Judas's place. What will the glorious reign on earth look like? How will it all work out? Well, I don't exactly know. But I'm looking forward to finding out. I hope you are as well. But they continued with him, even in his trials. They laid their lives down for him as the appointed sent ones who heard the message of the gospel from his own lips and then passed it on authoritatively to the world and he lets them know that he will not forget them. They will be remembered. How they gave everything for his service, they will be rewarded. But that's the promise for the twelve the apostles. What about those of us who believe their message? What about us who've gone on to follow Jesus just as they did. Well, Jesus has a promise for us as well. He goes on to say, And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Jesus' promise is a very broad one. It applies to everyone 
who has left the comforts and securities of this life to follow his call. And when we read how his promise is recorded in the other gospel accounts, we see it comes actually in two parts. The first part applies, as Mark has said, to life in this time, or as Luke has said, in this present time. Right now, at this time, as we live for Jesus on earth, he promises that we will receive a hundredfold and that of that which we have left for his name's sake. A follower of Jesus may be called upon to give up the comforts and security of houses or lands, but in the family love of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he or she can enjoy the comfort and security of countless houses and lands of other brothers and sisters who share hospitality and the comforts of life with them. Acts 4.32 says, Neither said any of them that all of these things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Many have said or have to leave brothers and sisters behind, but how about the countless numbers of brothers and sisters in Christ that we now have? Sharing fellowship in the hope of eternity. I say that's a lot different than the health and wealth being preached uh, gospel being preached today. They say, well, if you, uh, you, you shouldn't be a poor person if you know the Lord. You'll, be, uh, you'll become rich. That's not what Jesus was saying. He wasn't saying you become rich in this world's goods. But you come, become rich in Christ. Notice here an eternal application. We said this kind of comes in two parts. The first applies to the blessings and the richness that we have now in Christ. In this time, in this present time. There's also a a second part which the Lord promises to apply to life, as Mark says, in the world to come. Jesus says, we will inherit everlasting life. I believe the greatest reason to follow Jesus Christ is because he is the pathway to eternal life. And as Peter himself once wrote, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. He said, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We gain back everything in life that we give up in order to follow Jesus faithfully. And when it's all over, we gain life eternal with Him. We give up for Jesus what we cannot keep in order to gain with Him what we cannot lose. Following Jesus is the greatest the best bargain, the best deal in the universe. Now, before we come to a close here, I believe it's important to stress that this isn't a promise for just anyone who gives up everything. You know, there are many people who have left the comforts of life in order to pursue self-imposed, pseudo-spiritual, monastic life of asceticism. And that accomplishes nothing. That behavior is nothing but presumptuous. 
It gains no favor with the Lord. Jesus makes it very clear that we aren't to lay aside the things of life on our own initiative. Rather, we're only to do that in response to his call. Peter, James, John, Matthew, the others, they left everything behind when Jesus called them. And that, he goes before us as well this morning, and he beckons us. And we are to follow him only where he leads. You notice here in verse 29, Jesus applies the promise only to those who leave the comforts of life for my name's sake. Or as it says in Mark's account, for my sake in the Gospels. Or as it says in Luke's account, for the kingdom of God's sake. The main point is this. When he calls us to follow, and when that call to follow involves leaving the comforts and security of the things of this world, we can safely let go of those things. We can confidently suffer loss of all things at the call of Jesus because he promises we will gain many times over what it is that we forsake for him. Now isn't it interesting that perhaps this is one of the great paradoxes of the scriptures. When we give up everything that we hold dear in this world, God gives us so much more in spiritual riches and blessings. Reminds me of a song I used to sing. The treasures of earth are not mine. I hold not its silver and gold, but a treasure far greater is mine. I have riches of value untold. Oh, the depths of the riches of love the riches of love in Christ Jesus, far better than gold or wealth untold, are the riches of love in Christ Jesus. Come take of the riches of Christ, Exhaustless and free is the store of its wonderful fullness receive till you hunger and thirst nevermore. Oh, the depths of the riches of love, the riches of love in Christ Jesus far better than gold or wealth untold are the riches of love in Christ Jesus. Is he calling you in some way today? Trust him. No one ever gives their all for him will ever end up a loser. Let's bow in prayer.